from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I think it's a Western perspective that tends to see humans as inherently bad for the environment. Um, so we're really quick to agree with um, these narratives that, you know, humans cause their own disaster um, because it is a situation that we are living in now. Um, however, it's not fair for us to um, push those perspectives on other people with, you know, different cultures and people of the past. I'm Sarah Fetsky. The lost civilization of Cahokia is one of those mysteries that gets our minds worrying. The settlement in what today is the Cahokia Mound State Historic Site in Illinois was once one of the great cities of the world, bigger than London or Paris, and the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere north of Mexico. But by A.D. 1400, it was basically abandoned. What made the residents leave? One persistent theory involves man-made ecological disaster, that these native Mississippians destroyed their habitat and had to move on. And that theory involves wood overuse. Now, that theory is a popular one, but Caitlin Rankin says her research shows it's simply not true. Rankin's findings were recently published in the journal Geoarchaeology. She is today a geoarchaeologist for the Illinois State Archaeological Survey, and she did the research for her paper as a doctoral student at Washington University. And she joins us today to talk about it. So, Caitlin Rankin, welcome. Thanks for having me on the air, Sarah. So, Caitlin, you credit two professors at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville for proposing the wood overuse theory of Cahokia's collapse. And, and they first proposed this in 1993. What was their theory at that time? So the theory at the time was that um, deforestation for wood use happening in the uplands would have caused increased erosion in the uplands and that sediment would be deposited in what we call the American bottom floodplain. So this is the floodplain of the Metro East that's, you know, outside of the bluff line. Um, and that this flooding would have caused increasingly frequent and unpredictable, um, this erosion would have caused increasingly frequent and unpredictable flooding. And that could have contributed to the abandonment of Cahokia. So at the time that they posited this, this is going back about 28 years, um, did they have any data about land use practices there that, that was evidence um, buttressing this? Yeah, so the evidence that they were relying on to build this hypothesis is the evidence of wood use, um, that there was increasing use of upland trees um, happening more towards the, ends of, the end of Kogia's occupation. Um, so this was the evidence that they used to kind of build this narrative. And the narrative of deforestation leading to erosion, leading to sedimentation, leading to flooding, is one that we see happening um, a lot particularly here in the West, but normally it's related to really heavy, like clear-cutting trees um, and also relating to mining, mining practices. So it is a narrative that does happen. Um, however, for this hypothesis, they're really just relying on um, the use of wood, of upland wood. Okay, so they knew that the people living there had used wood um, and they thought, okay, maybe they were clearing too much of it too fast. That's something we've seen happen in the modern world. Yes, exactly. Okay, so this was the theory. What made you want to dig deeper into this theory and, and see what the soil actually tells us? Yeah, so whenever I went to do this research, I wasn't specifically addressing this hypothesis. 
Um, so I was working in a really weird part of Cahokia called the North Plaza. The North Plaza is a really weird space because it was constructed in the lowest elevation of the site. And even weirder, it has a creek running through it, Cahokia Creek, hmm. um, at least as we know it historically. So this is odd because we view what we call mountain plaza groups as places used for public, like public gathering spaces that are surrounded by residential areas. So, you know, if environmental conditions were the same as they were today, they would have built this public space in a swamp, hmm. which would be pretty cool. Um, so the questions, <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> yeah, the questions going into this project I were asking were really about environmental change through time and whether or not environmental change um, altered people's use of the space. And so I wasn't, you know, specifically going in to address this hypothesis, um, but by the evidence I found, I was able to, um, as you could say, disprove it or say it's very unlikely that this happened. And so how were you able to disprove that? Uh, what did you find that is contrary to this long-held theory? Yeah, so I found really three things, and this was done by conducting archaeological excavations um, near two different mounds that um, define what we call the North Plaza, um, and also doing sediment coring. Um, so really for me as a, a geoarchaeologist, I use soil and sediment as a proxy to understand past environmental conditions. Um, and so what I found is we do have evidence of flooding. Um, however, this is happening early in Cahokia's um, construction. Hmm. Um, so on top of flooding deposits, we actually have people building mounds. Um, so people aren't abandoning the site due to flooding. They're seeing it and they're living it and they still stay. Hmm. Uh, they're still investing in the space. The second thing I found was that um, during the construction, whenever people were building uh, Cahokia and whenever they lived there, the landscape was actually very stable. Um, and the landscape remained stable until um, Euro-American settlement, um, really in the 1850s. And so what I see is a signature of really crazy flooding happening of the local drainages along Cahokia and Canteen Creeks. And it's um, resulting in about 2.2 centimeters a year of sedimentation. Um, and to put this in perspective, this is um, almost higher than the Mississippi Delta sedimentation rates. Hmm. Um, so crazy, crazy high sedimentation. And I think it's probably related to upland coal mining in Canteen Creek because they would, you know, use um, the creek to find coal seams and they would start digging them out right there. So this kind of ecocide narrative that we have proposed, we see it happening, but we don't see it happening until after um, Euro-American settlement. Hmm. That's so interesting. And I just want to say, before we, we talk more about what this all means, is what it took for you to get to the bottom of this, because this was not just as simple as going out and, and taking a soil sample. I understand you were out there six or seven days a week for seven months, and then you went back months later and did even more months of work. What does it take to get to the level of soil that you need to get at to, to examine these questions? Yeah, a lot of work. Um, these excavations were pretty deep, so I mean, they were above my head. Um, the deepest excavation was 245 um, centimeters, 245 centimeters. Um, and we have to dig it all by hand, and we have to dig it pretty slowly. So a lot of times when people are visiting the site, they might have the comment like, oh, we can get an excavator and help you out real quick. Um, no, <laughs> we can't do that. I mean, we could, but we can't because archaeology is a destructive science. So a really important part of archaeology is um, going slowly and recording everything we see and making sure we're not missing any uh, subtle features in the soil that are, you know, the remains of people living there in the past. So we have to be really careful to 
dig by hand and document everything. Um, and so, yeah, this is a pretty large excavation to be doing by hand. Um, we were out there from May to December 1st was when we closed. So that was one excavation. And then the other excavation from um, June to October. So, you know, out there every day, um, digging dirt. So it, it takes quite a lot and a lot of persistence and a lot of really good note taking. And when you say you're digging it by hand, um, just using a small tool or, or what did you actually use for the digging? Yeah, a lot of times. So um, depending on exactly what we're digging, um, we'll do something called shovel scraping. So we'll use shovels, but we're not just, you know, chunking it out, trying to get it through fast, like as fast as we can. We're really just kind of skimming the surface, um, making sure that, you know, we're not going through anything like, you know, a house or something. You don't want to just chunk through it and then miss it completely. Um, so we had to slowly dig. And then sometimes when we do encounter the features, then we'll be using trowels. Hmm. I have to imagine you must be an extraordinarily patient person. <laughs> Is that something that, that was a, a characteristic of yours before you got into this field? Um, I don't consider myself a patient person, but um, a lot of people, I guess relatively, it's all relative. Um, <laughs> um, I guess so. Um, we do have volunteers who work at the site and people have thanked me for being patient with them. So maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should give yourself some credit. I'm, I'm very impressed by this. But I want to go back to your findings here. Um, it, it, I think we're, we're all so wedded to this idea that something disastrous must have happened to this Cahokia settlement. And I think a lot of people um, in recent decades have been attached to the idea that they must have caused it themselves, that this was a man-made crisis. Why do you think that has been such a popular theory? Um, I think, you know, it's how we view our relationship to the environment. Um, and I think it's a Western perspective that tends to see humans as inherently bad for the environment. Um, so we're really quick to agree with um, these narratives that, you know, humans cause their own disaster um, because it is a situation that we are living in now. Um, however, it's not fair for us to um, push those perspectives on other, piece, other people with, you know, different cultures and people of the past. You know, we shouldn't put our own experiences and apply them to others. Um, we should be asking, you know, questions and testing the assumptions so that way we can actually learn um, from people who, you know, maybe live differently than us or maybe even in some cases more sustainably. It's interesting, I mean, that, that the Cahokians seem to be doing such a good job at, at managing conditions, or at least these conditions that you looked at, um, and that the land was really in great shape until the 1850s. So we're all kind of attached to this notion of, um, you know, something terrible happened there, but maybe this is more of a present tense issue. Something terrible is happening in this area. Yeah, so some of the future work that we're planning on doing really stems from the amount of historic sedimentation I saw in the excavations um, made me realize how much we have altered the environment of the Metro East. Mm -hmm. um, so my next project really involves removing all of the historic sedimentation and the altered environment to create what we're calling a pre-settlement digitation model, a digital elevation model for the American bottom. So it's going to remove all of the historic landscape modification and we'll use that to create a watershed model. And this will help us form a better baseline of what the hydrology used to look like before we altered the area. And so we can see the Metro East, you know, has so many issues with flooding and stormwater runoff. And I think in a sense that maybe we've kind of created our own problems there. 
Um, and so I'm hoping that, you know, we've talked with some land managers and some conservancies. We're hoping that this will be useful as a baseline for any future planned restoration projects. We're talking today to Caitlin Rankin. She's a research geoarchaeologist for the Illinois State Archaeological Survey. That's part of the University of Illinois. And the research that she's talking about today was published in the journal Geoarchaeology. She did this work as a doctoral student at Washington University. Caitlin, going back to this this debunking, um, you end your paper by saying there's a need for more researchers who are trained in interdisciplinary research. I imagine people who aren't just sitting there dreaming up about lost civilizations, but are actually able to take those those soil samples. Is that something that, that's only happening all too recently, that maybe we weren't combining these fields in ways that we should have? Yeah. Um, the history of the field of geoarchaeology, um, in the past, it was more of a consultant position. So you would have a geologist um, come out to visit the archaeological site and help them interpret what was going on. Um, so we have, you know, theory and we have method. So you had the archaeologist who was really proposing the theories and explaining why things were, and it was the geologist who was coming in and help, helping them interpret what they saw. Um, so with the interdisciplinary rather than you know multidisciplinary, which is more of that consultant form, um, you have the geologist and the anthropologist as one person. So you're better merging um, theory and methods so that the project really comes um, is developed with both theory and method in mind. Is that the way the profession is moving, or are you still somewhat of an isolated example, somebody who can who can bring both of these ideas to the table at the same time? Yeah, I think um, I think it's developing more that way, but um, it's becoming a lot more interdisciplinary, and we're you know not just consultants anymore. We're becoming much more involved with the theory and. The practice and everything. So I think the discipline is moving in the right direction. Hmm. I want to talk just a little bit about your career for anybody who might be curious how you ended up going down this path. Um, you're from Western Pennsylvania, so you it's not like you grew up in the shadow of Cahokia dreaming about <laughs> these soil samples. What got you hooked on geoarchaeology? Um, for me as a kid, um, my dad was uh, operated heavy equipment. Um, and I spent a lot of time at his um, dig sites, <laughs> just, you know, bored kid. Um, and I actually would trace stratigraphic profiles um, in my free time. I didn't know what it was back then, but I just like looking about it. And, you know, that's when I learned, I think I found a fish fossil once. And it was, um, we were digging a foundation for my, my aunt's house. And I was just like, why is there a fish here? It's dry. <laughs> but it wasn't always. Um, that kind of, you know, blew my mind. So that was what started. And I was fortunate enough to get into archaeology at a young age um, and get into the field work. And so, you know, incorporating my interest in stratigraphy and then also, you know, my interest in just kind of humans and the environment, it was it was the perfect fit for me. <laughs> and stratigraphy, that's sort of where we see the dirt going down feet. We can see the different colors. <laughs> yeah, you see the different colors, the physical properties. So you can see like different layers in soil. Um, more people are familiar with, you know, rock stratigraphy. So, um, what's the closest one? If you, I think, um, if you get off the interstate, off of two, uh, after, off of 44, um, in Eureka, there's that beautiful limestone rock cut mm. there. So that's some great stratigraphy that you can think of as a local. So if people want to get their kids hooked on this field. This sounds like this is the place to start them. Although it sounds like it really helps to have an excavator in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, um, it definitely does. But, you know, if you don't have one, you can take advantage of the road cuts. And 
I know there's also something called, um, well, there's geocaching. So they do earth caches too, where you can take your kids to, um, you know, places of geological interest hmm. and, you know, you can learn about it there. So that's a great way to introduce your kids to this topic. So you found your calling pretty early, um, but it sounds like you, you didn't waver in that. Um, what brought you to Washington University? How did you, you make your way to where you are today? Um, yeah, so I mean, I ended up doing my undergrad at Beloit College. Um, it's a small liberal arts college in Wisconsin. I went there because I wanted to um, be an anthropologist. Um, I actually wanted to study classical archaeology, but I realized they spent too much time um, in a museum. And I wanted to be out in the field, so the geologist kind of lured me in. And I was really fortunate that I got to do a research experience for undergrads during my time there, and it was at Angel Mounds in Indiana. Um, so, you know, it was really kind of Mississippian mounds that combined, you know, my interest in geology and um, archaeology. And that's because, you know, these past people were using soil and sediment as a medium for construction. Um, so, you know, in order to understand, you know, past like mound construction and stuff, you really need to understand the soils and sediments and be able to, to read them. So that's how I really kind of got involved in, you know, Midwestern archaeology. Hmm. And then I came to WashU. Um, because Cahokia was, you know, in the backyard and, you know, I wanted to do backyard archaeology and really get to know the place that I was doing my research in. Um, and then, you know, there's great people. I worked with John Kelly, who is kind of one of the masters of knowledge, um, at Cahokia. He's worked here since the seventies. Um, and then also T.R. Kidder, who's a pretty famous geoarchaeologist. So, it was just the perfect place for me. And so now you've got your PhD um, and you've landed a job in the field. You're a research geoarchaeologist for the Illinois State Archaeological Survey. Um, what are you going to be doing in that role? Um, so a lot of the projects that we work on are um, contract projects for the Department of Transportation. Um, so we conduct archaeological investigations related to highway projects. Um, and that's my main work. Um, but I also do my own research on the side. Um, so this project that I was talking about with creating this um, pre-settlement elevation model for the American bottom, um, that's something that will, you know, I hope be helpful in both my research pursuits, um, but it's also something because it's going to involve a lot of compilation of um, data that's been collected really over the past 50 years um, in the region. So I'm really compiling a bunch of data and hopefully we can create something that's, you know, useful across the region. Hmm. So for somebody in your field is being stationed um, in the Metro East, having access to Cahokia, you're kind of living the dream right there. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, a lot of people have to travel. I mean, especially with COVID, um, a lot of researchers have to travel abroad. If they're, you know, working in Mesoamerica or Europe or Africa, I get to do archaeology in my backyard. Um, which is amazing and, you know, such a blessing. Um, so, yeah, I'm just really happy to really get to know the place and get to understand the people that live here. And, you know, you just understand it so much better if you're living and working in the same place. Well, Caitlin Rankin, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing about this really interesting work. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for having me on the air and the opportunity to share our research. And thank everyone else for listening. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.
find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air, suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.